I'm reading Matthew 18:21 through 35. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And, as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions, and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, Lord, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my, so my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I forgot what I'm supposed to say. What is it? The Lord of the Word. The Word of the Lord. if you can really call it a topic of forgiveness, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, is rather enormous and, like everything else in the world, subject to commodification and hallmarkification, by which I mean made vapid, platitudinous, trite. Since 9-11-2001, there have been thousands of books bought and sold on forgiveness. Seminars delivered, speakers employed, to little avail, I might add. The president on the eve of the anniversary of a violent destruction seeming oddly inhuman, Jim thought perhaps a robot, got up in front of a television audience, a television audience whose brains and hearts may be, eaten, be being eaten by zombies. I don't know for sure. I'm just judging from the television programming that came later. Or brains and hearts that are diminished, perhaps, 
by something Halliburton is putting in the water. The president said, we will take out anyone who threatens us. Take out? And this, if the past is any indication, will include children and collateral damage. Forgiveness, schmorfigness. This world runs on vengeance and dollars for war profiteers, obviously. But still, there are 10,783 books being sold on Amazon.com about forgiveness. The supernatural power of forgiveness, how to escape your prison of pain and unlock a life of freedom, 21 days to forgive everyone for everything. Forgiveness is a gift, a four-step process. Forgiveness is a choice, a five-step process. Do yourself a favor. Forgive. The cover of this one has a picture of a woman in a silky black pantsuit perched sideways on a white lounge chair. She seems like she might be a talk show host, certainly a speaker, probably nationwide. Forgive so much it hurts from the So Much It Hurts series. I don't know why Finding Forgiveness by Dana Marie Bell has a picture of a muscular man's chest, no head, next to a wolf. 853 of these books come under the label Health, Fitness, and Dieting. 17 under Sports and Outdoors. 581 under Romance. The Dalai Lama has a book about forgiveness. So does Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, Buddhists, monks, nuns, formerly violent revolutionaries, Holocaust survivors, those who have been oppressed and tortured, those who give their lives to people who are starving, sick, and homeless by way of an empire that has no regard for them. I mean, really, what can I possibly add to the conversation? What do I know? And yet, even I, not a survivor of the Holocaust, not living in Gaza, am flummoxed by Peter's seeming naivete. How many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? As many as seven times? Like, he thinks that's a lot? Like, seven times would even remotely be enough forgiveness? I mean, oh my God, did he not have a spouse? <laughs> Parents? A co-worker? It's not so much that they're actively sinning against you exactly, it's just who they are as human beings. Not that they're worse than anyone else. We're all such a mess. We hurt each other a lot without even trying most of the time, though sometimes we do try. Not our best days, of course. We don't love that well. We aren't that great at it for sustained periods of time and fits and starts at best. We're self-centered and irritable and irritating. We are petty and dismissive and just tired. Parents, even very good, loving ones pass on their utterly imperfect DNA 
the shortcomings of which you have to live with every day. You go back to spend a week with them, and you know why you are who you are. Some good, some crazy. To keep loving in the face of human beings? This is sort of a miracle that rests on a very, very giant amount of forgiveness. Some grace that really must sustain us in some very fundamental way because we need each other, but we are very difficult to live with. So Jesus says, no, Peter, and not seven times. Seventy times seven. But still, that's just 490. If you live with someone 365 days a year, 490 is not going to get you very far, a year and a half. And that's if you're averaging once a day. And you may need it more like every half hour. You have to breathe forgiveness in and breathe it out like constantly, habitually, like gratitude. They may be nearly the same thing. You need it as a way of life, not 490 times. But the numbers in this parable are weird, notable. They're even sort of glaring. Those seven seem so in inadequate in terms of actual math, in terms of counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's over so fast. On another level, a beyond math sort of level, in the ancient Hindu writings, in the Quran, in the Jewish and Christian scripture, the number seven stands for completion. A sort of perfection with infinitude. God made the world in seven days. There are seven musical notes in each octave, seven C's, seven chakras in the human body, seven wonders of the world, seven colors in the rainbow, Muslims on pilgrimage to Mecca walk seven times around the Kaaba. James Bond is 007. When Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven, 70 times seven, maybe he's saying somehow it's beyond, even beyond the apparent completion of what is, beyond counting. Like Peter, you're counting, don't count. You can't count. Mercy is not counting, not accounting. It's the absence of calculation. Derrida says law is calculable. Justice escapes all calculation. So it is with mercy. These are not mechanical, programmable things. They have no algorithms. They don't work according to systems. Grace is incalculable, unsystematizable. You think that might be what Jesus is getting at, but then he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Good Lord, I mean, I hope not. Like a powerful ruler with slaves who wants to figure out how much they owe him? That's practically the definition of evil. The powerful elite raking in the dough at the expense of the many. The kingdom of God is like that? How so? Block. 
What could this possibly have to do with anything hopeful or beautiful or true, a king wishing to settle accounts? But actually, you don't have to get very far into the parable before it gets all psychedelic. Thank God. So the servant is brought before the king, and the king peruses his accounting book, finds the guy's name, looks up and says with a totally straight face, you owe 75 billion trillion zillion dollars. You owe, like, infinity, practically. And someone other than me has actually done the math on this. The king says the servant owes a figure that is equal to 200,000 years of labor. It's an absurd number. It's impossible that he would ever owe that much. There weren't credit cards. There wasn't even that much stuff to buy. No cars, no yachts, no iTunes. Obviously, the guy can't pay. So the king draws a black line through his name to be sold with wife and children. But then the servant falls on his knees, have patience with me, I'll repay you, which is sort of ridiculous, actually. You could never possibly repay him. There's no way. But then the king says, surreal, okay, you're free. You don't owe me a thing. Go on. I release you entirely. It's like... This possibility, this shocking revelation, moves in for a moment and takes everybody by surprise. Like, money has no meaning. Money has no hold on anything. The head of state, the debt-ridden citizenry, everybody listening to the story is shocked. In this moment, the mercy moves in, the servant is set free, The accounting is abandoned. Now that is the sort of thing that might topple an empire. Maybe this is what the kingdom of God is like. But almost immediately things go back to normal. The guy was freed from the system that enslaved him. But then he just goes right out. And the very next minute acts like he's not free at all. He's not happy. He spreads the dread that he was freed not to feel. He tries to get money from this other guy as if he was still locked in the system. As if money was still definitive. And then he throws the guy in prison because he can't pay what he owes. And starts this whole chain of unmerciful events that ends in torture. His fellow servants aren't merciful to him. The king takes back his mercy, and it's all just hell. Merciless, accounting, vengeance. But maybe the kingdom of God is like this alternative, beautiful possibility, really there, really real, but we can't quite grasp it. I mean, that's part of the nature of the kingdom, being ungraspable, incalculable, unsystematizable, uncommodifiable. But maybe it's calling us constantly, always whispering in our ear, wait, look, see? 
The system that runs the world is a lie. One that we are deeply implicated in and wound up in and suffocated by. But there is something deeply true that resists empire and even anticipates its demise, a hope beyond it. And this is where we are called to live somehow. I don't know how time and stuff works. If we all get to live sometime, somewhere, or maybe just in a moment, free in the kingdom of God, or if it's something that eventually unfolds historically. I mean, that's hard to imagine. But I think we should try to live into it somehow. I'm pretty sure that this radically alternative kingdom, if you want to call it a kingdom, I'd rather not, is the hope. The momentary overthrowing of accounting in this parable was actually not like a heartwarming glimpse of forgiveness. I mean, the, the story is not heartwarming, really. Not that there aren't a million heartwarming stories of forgiveness. But the story, I think, is pointing to something more radical than heartwarming. It has to do with mammon, money. And it has to do with a move that takes its power away. And it warns that if people listening to the parable don't do likewise, they will remain slaves in a prison. Some torture is ahead. And boy, doesn't that seem true. Just look at the history of the world. Empire. The corporate machinery, mammon, money, the market economy rules, and it enslaves us. And it is not a kind jailer. For all practical purposes, mammon is God. Empire has won. It's like there's no choice but to submit. If you want to eat, if you want to be safe, if you want to be secure, but mammon is not a good, benevolent God, bestowing us with good things in return for our submission to him. Wake up. The great, enormous settling of accounts kingdom, the current system of power and wealth, capitalism as usual, is not working. It manufactures terrorism overseas, poverty for its citizens, and ecological collapse for everybody else, and yet the demented God blunders on. The 1% thrives, but what good will their wealth even be when the ecosystem collapses? Because they've poisoned the earth and all its inhabitants for profits. Maybe they'll colonize another planet. Maybe they're right. Mammon is God and a cruel one, and that's all we have. So we should keep submitting, hoping to get enough money to buy a ticket for our grandchild on the transport to the next planet. That will inevitably be destroyed over time for profit. Or maybe we should quit pledging our allegiance to it. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wished 
to settle accounts. But then the grace of God swept in and set the captives free. I don't know how it works, but I love that. We live in a world where money is God, yes. But this is a strange secret. It is really nothing, no thing. It's papers and numbers. It's not even paper, what am I saying? It's calculations on the internet. The only reason it has value is because we agree to believe in it and trust in it. But maybe there is truly another God, a good, graceful, loving, living God who created the earth and longs for it to flourish and all its inhabitants, loves it, loves us, is incarnate in it even somehow. Not just paper and numbers, but has a heart, can suffer, even bleed. And maybe we should figure out how to give our lives to this great lover, the God of gift, grace, instead of the king who wishes to settle accounts. There's a vast apparatus that for centuries has been devoted to the expansion of the economy, the exploitation of resources, the conquest of the natural world. What if we can't quit pledging our allegiance to it? You know, anything that we made off limits to commodification, that could hasten the demise of the beast. Starve the beast. Don't make yourself a product. Don't believe people who say you have to. Every forest we prevent from being turned into board feet, every piece of land we remove from development, every indigenous culture we insulate from cultural imperialism is one less place for mammon to colonize. There's still goodness in the soil. There are actually still healthy forests, few and far between. There are still fish in some parts of the ocean. There are still people and cultures that haven't completely sold off their health and creativity. Maybe we can't erase the trace of every evil from the world, but we could stop pledging our allegiance to it. Grace, I know, is a word. Sometimes it doesn't seem to be very meaningful. But grace is the activity that is the opposite of the system that runs the world, the opposite of the market economy. Gift. Gift profanes the system by going entirely against its law. It is the opposite of buying and selling. It is unbuyable and it is unsellable. How do we resist the empire? I don't really know where it goes from here. But just as a start, take this gift.